Welcome to the weekend edition of the Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Soak Podcast. I'm going to take you way back. This is the year 2006. I am a freshman or a sophomore at UC Riverside in California. I've just been introduced to Stoic philosophy. I hear about Marcus Aurelius. I hear about Epictetus. I get the Gregory Hayes translation. Uh, Dr. Drew uh, is the one who first turns me on to the Stoics. I read Marcus Aurelius, I love it. I go, okay, what translation of Epictetus should I read? Even though I'm probably then pronouncing it Epictetus or something. And I go to Borders in the Riverside Plaza, uh, which is currently a Forever 21. But then it was, it might not even be a Forever 21 anymore. But but at the time, it was a Borders bookstore, my favorite bookstore. I loved it more than Barnes & Noble at the time. I walk into the philosophy section, I look for Epictetus, and I see one called The Art of Living. That seemed way more accessible and more my style than the Enchiridion or the Discourses. So I get it. It's The Art of Living, the classical manual on virtue, happiness, and effectiveness, a new interpretation by Sharon LaBelle. I buy it and read it, It was very accessible, almost too accessible, I felt at the time, and I did go read the others. I I wondered, like, is this really, could the Stokes have really been this straightforward and clear? I don't know. It almost, I was almost, like, 
it was like too easy. I was like convinced maybe, maybe it wasn't right or I, I don't know. But it, this really is how the Stoics wrote. And I, I am holding that copy in front of you and I can see some of the passages that I've marked. Here's page 58. Don't be afraid of verbal abuse or criticism. Only the morally weak feel compelled to defend or explain themselves to others. Let the quality of your deeds speak on your behalf. Uh, or, uh, let's see. Page seven, open your eyes, see things for what they really are, thereby sparing yourself the pain of false attachments and avoidable devastation. Or page 77, if someone tries to impress you, claiming to understand the writings and ideas of a great thinker such as Chrysippus, think to yourself, the important thing is not merely to be able to speak fluently about obtuse subjects. What is essential is to understand nature and align your attentions with the actions and actions with the way things are. Anyways, you can see why I love the translation. As it happened many years later, I would get my first book agent, Steve Hanselman, who uh, would turn out to have played a role in publishing it, which I talk about with today's guest, the one and only Sharon LaBelle, who 20 years uh, after she published it, maybe more, uh, came on the Daily Stoic Podcast. We had a wonderful conversation. We talk about stoicism. We talk about translations. We talk about uh, the role of men and women in Stoic philosophy. We talk about virtue specifically towards the end. We get into uh, her take on the four virtues, which uh, reminds me, my new book, the first in my series on the four virtues, is coming out September 28th. You can pre-order it, dailystoic.com slash pre-order. We got a bunch of awesome bonuses. Not only can you get signed copies from me if you order at dailystoic.com slash pre-order. But if you want a signed page from the manuscript that I wrote, like an actual part of the process accumulation of the book, there's also a way you can get those. So you can go to dailystoic.com slash pre-order for my new book on the four virtues, the first of which being Courage is Calling, Fortune Favors the Brave. Check that out if you want to support the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. And if you haven't yet read Epictetus and you're looking for a place to start, Sharon LaBelle's wonderful, accessible translation, The Art of Living, the classical manual on virtue, happiness, and effectiveness, is a good place to start. We sell it in the painted porch, so I'll have a link in the description below or get it anywhere you get books. Here's my interview with Sharon LaBelle. It's, uh, I was trying to think when we last saw each other, it would have been in Toronto for StoicCon. I, I have no conception of time anymore. That could have been 10 years ago or two and a half years ago. Well, we're on the same team time-wise, um, but I I do think that's right. It was in Toronto at a Stoicon, and uh, you made a big impression on me. <laughs> oh, well, well, you, well, your work made a very big impression on me. This would have been in 2006 or 2007. That's what I w would have gotten it. Um, Borders books still existed, and... Uh, I remember getting it there. And the other funny thing is that uh, Steve Hanselman, who I would work on with uh, on the Daily Stoic and uh, and 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 also would become my agent. He he was the publisher, right? Uh, of um, the Art of Living. My, well, he worked for the same publisher, but in in those days, because we're really talking early paleolithic yes uh, this was uh, i believe 
in fact, I'm quite sure that the book came out even before he began working for the company. Yeah, well, it's it was meant to be. It was all it was all aligned, and here we are. Here we are, and I, I'm just thrilled by the work that you are doing in in the world. I just think you're giving modern Stoicism uh, such a straightforward, simple voice and it it means a lot to a lot of people i i'm sure you know that but well that's I'm very one of kind. those people well that's very kind and you you were the uh i i would say you were the ultimate pioneer of this trend so i and i want to get to that but it, it it did occur to me we were just talking about time passing this sort of weird limbo period where we've all not been able to do what we've wanted to do and we couldn't see people the way it does kind of give you a glimpse into what I don't know, Epictetus's or Seneca's exile must have been like, you know, it's not like they were thrown in jail exactly, but they were socially distanced from Rome, you could say. That's beautiful. I've never looked at the last year and a half through such a beneficent lens. <laughs> well, one of the things that hit me about Seneca's Isle specifically, and I think I did a Daily Stoic email about this, is so he's exiled to Corsica, which I don't know that much about. But early in the pandemic, I was reading this biography of Napoleon, and Napoleon is from Corsica. And mm. he writes, you know, Napoleon, like it's like uh, when he's when Napoleon is sent off to exile, he passes the island and he, you know, they they stop and they let him have sort of one last longing look at it. It was like, it, I guess what, you know, Epictetus talks about how every situation has two handles. It struck me as this vivid example of it because Seneca sees it as this horrible punishment and he hates it. Meanwhile, uh, Napoleon coming from the same place, obviously many generations apart, although I can't imagine it changed that much, you know, sees it as this source of fond, beautiful, wonderful memories, uh, which I guess just goes to show, uh, you know, one man's tra trash is another man's treasure. It, indeed. And in some ways, uh, well, my mind always jumps to symbolism. Um, it, it seems like Napoleon represented, or excuse me, I, th I think I've got them flipped. Seneca represented human nature <laughs> that's uncultured and uh, Napoleon represents wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's, it's that, you know, if you decide to see it as a horrible punishment, you will hate it. And if you decide to see it as a wonderful, beautiful island uh, that you have all your fondest memories on, it will also be that. Yes. Yes. So walk me through your introduction to our friend Epictetus. How, how does this happen and how does he come into your life? Well, definitely through happenstance, <laughs> uh, because as I know that you know so well, no one cared about Stoicism, much less Epictetus back right. in. This would have been the early 90s when okay. I first came to read him. And the reason I came to read him is he was just part of a, a kind of an inevitable 
chain of books that I read ever since I was young enough to read because I've always been philosophically minded. And in some ways, I would say my two obsessions are um, meaningfulness. How, How does one have a meaningful life? How does one have a meaningful moment, a meaningful day? Uh, And then the idea of ordinary virtue, virtue as it's expressed on the ground in, you know, within the, what some people would call the mundane, though hearkening back to uh, Seneca and Napoleon, you know, you can see our ordinary moments as mundane or as majestic or as, you know, keys to the kingdom, whatever your kingdom is. Anyway, be that, but I digress. So I always read philosophy. And when I was a young, uh, a young married woman and having babies and such, I, I was really on a existentialism jag and then i i have to say i don't even really remember who or you know you know there's no like pivotal watershed moment when epictetus was put in my hands but i read his discourses and in those days sort of this the spiritual or pop psych call it what you will ethos was everybody was into eastern religions, you know, if you were a hip daddy-o kind of person. And so when I first read Epictetus, I I almost felt like I was, you know, betraying the the zeitgeist or something because, you know, in those days it was not considered cool to be a dead white man western philosopher you know that whole category of western moral philosophy was looked at as being um well just kind of like you're manacling yourself to a wall it's it seemed rich rigid it's this was not my judgment but uh but it was confusing for me at first when i first read his stuff because i wasn't supposed to like it (laughs) you know i was so busy uh practicing Tibetan Buddhism and, uh, you know, the, you know, all of that, definitely a person of my generation. I did what people did, but I was just thunderstruck by how relevant Epictetus's words seemed, not just to my life, but to, to the lives of everyone I loved and cared about. And so, um, I, I started messing around uh, writing his ideas in a more accessible way um, because I suppose it's kind of a, my personal marching orders for myself are to to rescue philosophy from the philosophers. <laughs> Mine too. And, yes, I noticed that. 
And along with that, to rescue the notion of virtue from the sanctimonious, and then furthermore, to rescue art from the critics. Um, artistic expression looms large in, in my life. And somehow this triad, kind of each part of it nourishes the, the other. Uh, do, I, do I remember you telling me that a neighbor had introduced you to philosophy as a as a young girl as well? Yes, and in fact, oh gosh, you've got a memory like an elephant. Yes, um, I, I suppose that would be the genesis of everything. I I grew up in a very multicultural neighborhood, and the fellow who lived across the street, um, his name was Narayan Champawat, and he was. Uh, a philosophy professor from from India, and he owned more books than anyone uh, I ever knew. In fact, we had a really bad earthquake one time, and uh, we had to manhandle him out of his house because he wouldn't leave his books. And I can kind of relate to it, but I choose life. Anyway, um, so, yeah, Narayan Champawat, uh you know, I think he recognized that I used to come over to his house to play with his kids. And I think he saw that I was kind of a, a misfit or a square peg trying to make it in a round hole. And he gave me a book that was, I, I'm pretty sure it was like a college freshman's intro to philosophy or something. But I took it home and I read it cover to cover like it was, you know, Talmud or something. And that, that yeah, that was the pivot point. That's when I thought Western philosophy, I, 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 need, to, um, I need to dive into this, however incrementally. Well, what I, what I love about that is the idea that this has kind of been this unbroken chain of that happening, right? So how is Marcus Aurelius introduced to Epictetus? You know, Rusticus just gives him a copy of these notes from his own library. I think I even yes. read, uh, George Washington is introduced to the Stoics by a neighbor, just like you were. I, I, <laughs> I just love the idea of like, hey, this worked for me. Maybe you should check it out. Being a really old timeless sort of passing of torches. Yes. Oh, that's that's such a beautiful image. And it's really true. I also need to, for a second, jump on just uh, an, an, an incidental phrase you just used in talking about Washington and his neighbor that, you know, hey, this, this works. Yeah. Uh, you might want to check. Because... If I had to say what Stoicism is, you know, just on, on one foot, like Hillel or something, yes. I would just say that Stoicism teaches us how to do what works and quit doing what doesn't. <laughs> yeah. All said and done, you, you know, because we're, we're kind of always bashing ourselves against the brick wall of how we want things to be rather than how they are. Well, I actually, if, if I was to do Epictetus in standing on one, like for people who don't know the Hillel reference you made, uh, which I only oh, recently please. came in, came in, countered, uh, encountered 
uh, Hillel was asked to to basically uh, explain uh, the Jewish faith while standing on one foot, and he said, uh, "Love thy neighbor as thyself. All the rest is commentary." Yes, um, which I think is so beautiful, and and sadly very much missed here. You know, in the middle of this pandemic, but I feel like Epictetus, and then I, I have your translation here of it. It, I think Epictetus standing on one foot says. Some things are within our control and some things are not. That yes. to me, that is the essence of of stoicism as well, right there. Exactly. And, and so given what you just said, then I would just put on the tagline, so act accordingly. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. Right. So focus, uh, so put all a hundred percent of your energy towards the things that are up to you. Yes. Which is a vast number of things. <laughs> I think that's the thing that we so forget, right? Because we're yes. so focused. Oh, dang it. I don't control this. Dang it. I don't control that. But look at the other side of the ledger. It's a it's a long ledger on the other side. There's so much we can do. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths that you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash stoic, code SPACE80. I think that's totally right. And and even if it even if it wasn't, I think the other way to think about it is like, let's say you don't control everything that it, that happens. You The Stoics say you control how you respond. So right. it, it sort of becomes this like, I'm rubber, you're glue. It just, you know, like it, it's the ultimate <laughs> retort, right? Like, like yeah, yes, you don't yeah. control what happens, but you control what you do about what happens. And so you essentially, essentially control everything that matters. Right. Right. Well said. So why do you think Epictetus is this underrated figure. I, I want to talk about your translation, but uh, what you're saying is true, I think. And it's weird, especially now, right? Like, um, I remember there was some sort of sneering article about my work uh, and its popularity in Silicon Valley a couple years ago that was like, 
Uh, these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs are using a philosophy popular with Greek slaves. And it struck me that. Oh, please. It <laughs> Sorry. Me, <laughs> it struck me that given our like focus on privilege and, and you know, sort of, I don't want to say, I, I'm using this ironically, canceling, you know, sort of racist or colonial figures from the past. It seems like Epictetus should move to the front of the line of our philosophical heroes because he was one of a handful of them who were not privileged, who were not slave owners, who experienced real adversities, who were not just, you know, rich white guys. Um, you know, it seems like he would be he he would be who we would be celebrating as we're trying to diversify the Western canon. But for some reason, even with the popularity of your work, that hasn't quite happened. He's still mostly unknown. Yes. It's, you know, I would like to say that I had the answer to that <laughs> question, but, and I could, you know, make up some pat response that would be plausible. But to be really honest, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because people have trouble pronouncing his name. <laughs> yep. Epictetus, no, I, what, how do you say yeah, it? Yeah. Right, right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's puzzling to me why anyone would have a problem with it, especially because of how you so ably described him. Is he wasn't? You know, I could understand people getting a little bent out of shape about um, Seneca. You know, a man of privilege, and yeah, Mar Mary Beard recently referred to Marcus Aurelius as a fascist. You know that he was the oh. emperor, and, and you're like, okay, I get what you're. I mean, it's technically yeah. true, but like, you can't say any of that stuff about Epictetus. No, you can't. He wins everyone. He's a slave. He's got a limp. He's everything. It's and he's ugly. He's, and he's in exile. You know, like, and he's in exile, right? Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, you know, I was just thinking of something while we were forth and backing here is I'm pretty sure that I cottoned to Epictetus at first more readily than Marcus or Seneca or Musonius, you know, the, the whole pantheon because he was a marginalized figure because mm -hmm. He had demonstrated, uh, you know, kind of incontrovertible uh, adversity. And, you know, especially as a, a female, that I relate to that a, a lot, you know, just that sense of, um, you know, the, 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 you feel impelled to live a life of wisdom. And, but you're trying to do that within a world that still doesn't quite take you seriously or doesn't give you the benefit of the doubt as being a sort of fully endowed human being because, you know, the whole idea of man and men is kind of interchangeable sure. with, with man and men specifically. And so just, I mean, my, I am not saying wham, 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 I'm so oppressed or uh, that would be ridiculous. I mean, it's, if we were... If you saw where I lived right now, if we were looking at each other, you'd say, shut up. Um, but uh, yeah, I, 
I like. He, it seemed like he earned his stoicism, but so did <laughs> so did the it. others. Sure, so did in their the own others way. on their in their own way on their own merits. Yeah. Well, I so think Epictetus has this sort of working class vibe to him because I mean, some of my favorite parts of Epictetus are, you know, he's working for Nero's secretary, so he's in the palace watching these insufferable privileged rich people bemoan the most preposterous things, right? You know, yeah. I think he says uh, someone walks into Nero's uh, court or his boss's court or something, and he says, you know, I'm down to my last million dollars. And, and he says, how, can, how, how have you survived? You know, like, or, or there's, a, there's another scene where he talks about, you know, somebody, he watches someone suck up to Nero's cobbler. Right, like he's so it, desperate to ingratiate himself into the inner workings of the palace, you know, he's sucking up to the to the guy that that fixes Nero's shoes, and so yeah. there is this. I think the reason Epictetus is so much so much more relatable, and perhaps this is why he's not popular in the Ivy League, is that he knew those people and he hated them, and he talks about them with scorn. And discuss because he, you know, he saw him up close, and he knew there was nothing special about him. Yes, yes. He he even looks down on the fancy philosophers. You have you translate it uh, pretty well in in your book as well. But I love where one of his students is bragging about reading Chrysippus, who is uh-huh. you know supposedly very obscure and difficult difficult to understand. And Epictetus says. You know, if if Chrysippus was a better writer, you wouldn't have anything to brag about. <laughs> oh man! So he just hated those phony stuff shirts, you know. Like he yes. he didn't, and and yeah, he wasn't he wasn't part of the old boys club. By I mean, he wasn't part of the club at all. They they made him go away to Nicopolis, but I mean, he he wasn't a part of that, and I think it it. You feel that even 2,000 years later. You do. You really do. And it seems like out of that exile, which is another way of saying, you know, he he got to take a really good spiritual retreat there. <laughs> um, it seems like what he bequeathed to us is... Uh, a kind of vernacular language for talking about values Be- because the, well Ryan this is kind of a half big thought M- maybe you can find something here i'm not most, sure if you can most most of mine are too so don't worry about it oh good okay i'm among friends but you know if you've ever talked about values with other people or taken a class when when the idea of values clarification or something like that, or or even in the corporate world, it's the language of values to me is very wooden and abstract. And yet our values are the very thing that kind of animate our life that, you know, that we actually do feel some passion about and the simplicity of Epictetus's style of, I, I don't want to say writing exactly, because I know it comes, has words come, sure. came through Arian, but there, there was just uh, a kind of lack of pretension and right. 
um, and it seemed like he had read Strunk and White. I mean, it was kind of incredible. Just it, uh, uh, there, there's no dead wood in yeah. in his um, teachings, and because of that, I think. When I say that he gave us a language to talk about values, I I mean that less in terms of having a conversation with the next person. Oh, what are your values? X, Y, Z, what are yours? P, Q, R. But just uh, with yourself, you get, to, you get to clarify when you read him what what matters and what doesn't uh, in, in the realm of thoughts and in the realm of words and deeds. And... It, it's just, it's not that complicated. <laughs> no, I, I, th- I think that's right. It's, I would imagine that it's because, so you take, you take even Epictetus's teacher, Musonius Rufus, who does experience adversity, he's exiled, but, um, or you take a Seneca or whatever. Um, these are brilliant ideas that they arrive to, it feels like through thinking, right? Um, yes. Through their study of the Stoics. It feels like Epictetus's are rooted on the bedrock of these experiences that like he, right. he's not talking about, he's not sitting down and going, what is freedom, you know, and having some interesting dialogue about it. He's yeah. thinking about what does it mean to be free when uh, I'm chained to a wall? Or what does it mean to be free when my leg has been broken by someone who owns me and my name literally means enslaved person. So I think it's like, it's almost as if he's coming at it from the opposite direction. So it's much closer rooted to real life than the other one. Like Seneca feels like he talked about all these things and then his his life came to challenge him to actually live up to the words and he does towards the end. But it feels like Epictetus is the reverse. He has the experiences and then spends the second half of his life talking about them, which is probably why I think Marcus Aurelius's writings are so brilliant, is that it's it's also right down against the nub of the experience. It's just a more privileged, sort of higher elite level set of experiences about leadership and stress and fame and power. Yes, yes, and yes. And italicize that. Uh, I think, I think it's Maybe in some ways I'm just restating what you're saying, but I think that Marcus and Epictetus gain their authority uh, as teachers because we all know what, or we have some sense of of what they actually went through and experiences what gives wisdom, not fancy, abstract, philosophical pirouettes. Do you think, um, speaking of Musonius Rufus, so I I think this also goes to your point about how stripped down Epictetus is, you know, his teacher, Musonius, is referred to as the Roman Socrates, kind of known for his eloquence. It's fascinating to me that Epictetus would then sort of go so starkly in the other direction. But you mentioned this idea of, of sort of Epictetus being approachable or or more accessible to women. Do you feel like, I know Musonius writes about teaching women and that virtue is genderless and that, you know, all of that. I, I guess we don't know, but I mean, where do you, 
having sort of immersed yourself in Epictetus's world, do you think he taught women? Do, do you think part of what the universality you're you're sensing, and do you think it's it, it's actually rooted in that's how he acted? I, I, you know, I couldn't conclusively say because I'm not a historian or a classicist, but I don't think so. I I think that Epictetus's words were indeed um, a product of his experience, but to be a product of your experience isn't to doesn't mean that quite literally the only things you know are the things you experience because when you experience something it then imprints on your heart and mind it well kind of in a uh in a uh, like a multivalent way it's like you've you uh when you have an experience in a way you also have access to the various potential analogies to that experience i think that's what i'm uh grasping at and so i you know the guy was definitely a product of his time and i especially because across all of the the extant literature uh, of from the ancient stoics uh, doesn't talk too much about cooking or cleaning the house or taking care of the babies and because of that i think i think the women and girls are off doing that stuff sure. <laughs> because because you know the men don't draw on that those uh, you know dom domesticity as uh as a source of um universal human wisdom it's, it, it, but you know from that era when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoic and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm just about to go into the studio to record my latest audiobook. My wife and I have been listening to audiobooks. We've been listening to audiobooks in the car as a family just to keep our kids off screens because Audible is amazing. And Audible is also the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next to listen recommendations to satisfy every type of thriller listener. If you want breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that will enthrall you, even brand new and exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors with 
then you want to check out Audible. My wife and I were just raving about this true crime audiobook that we read called Furious Hours. And then I've been raving about this book, Night of the Grizzlies, which I loved. Audio peaks the imagination and it brings thrillers to life. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoic or text daily stoic to 500 500. Yeah, I just wonder, I just wonder if part of it, it, it's sort of like, there is something remarkable about Musonius Rufus, who's teaching men and women and slaves, that must have been in a pretty transgressive or at least progressive classroom that Epictetus comes to study philosophy in, at least compared to its time. That makes a lot of sense. Do you know anything? Uh, I I don't know that much about Musonius Rufus besides a, a few fun facts and that he was um, Epictetus's teacher. But do you know how Musonius Rufus was received in the world? Um, I, I mean, he had that moniker, the Roman uh, Socrates. Yeah. But I mean, how was he thought of? I mean, he's exiled four times, so uh, he's sort of a player, but then also kind of a constant thorn in the side of the powers that be. Um, but he does have this fascinating lecture, uh, which you can people can look at, called Should Daughters Receive the Same Training as Sons? And it's one of the few, you know, only like 10 or 15 of his uh, writings survive. And this is one of them. So who knows how representative it is of the larger, you know, sort of bead. But um, it is striking to read this guy writing 2000 years ago going like he's he basically says he's like, you don't care what gender your dog is or your horse like you, you know what yeah. they're capable of and you you feed and treat and train them accordingly. Why should you? assume that your daughter is not capable of virtue uh, or wisdom or, you know, uh, he's like, isn't temperance as important in a woman as courage is important to a man or, you know, uh, whatever. Obviously, there's pretty stratified gender roles in Rome at this time, but it is a remarkably uh, progressive piece of writing when you think about what was happening at that time. Yeah, you know, it sounds like he had to watch his backside <laughs> a lot. <laughs> this might have been why he was exiled so many times. Right, right. I think I think his uh, fellow men uh, probably they're like, dude, what are you doing? Got what are a little you doing with him? <laughs> so, so you mentioned that you're not a classicist. Uh, how I I know I get asked this question. So how the hell do you end up writing this this translation of Epictetus that uh, you know brings him to you know thousands and thousands of people? It it can't just be that he was neglected. You uh, it was kind of I, it's a brave thing to do. Yeah, or well, I don't. I don't know how brave it was or not, uh, but all I can say is that I, I've, I've always faced life as an autodidact. And when, when something intrigues me in any domain of experience, 
to me, I, I hope I don't sound like a Northern California flake, but it it's like life is saying beep 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 beep. You know, it it beeps at yeah. me, and um, and I think you understand that as a kind of self created person. Sure. Um, and so I've always just kind of followed and then fully dropped into the next good idea that comes. And so Epictetus, uh, I can't account for the success of, of the art of living. And I'm not being falsely modest. I, it still kind of baffles me. It, it delights me too, of course. But, um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of times people are afraid to take on the mantle of knowing something or, or, or having the, the right to, to fully engage with something if, if they don't have certain, um, you know, societally conferred credentials. And it's so unfortunate. I, I think we all... I mean, I guess, in other words, I'm saying hip, hip, hooray for the popularizer, hip, hip, hooray for the amateur, but mostly hip, hip, hooray for living wide, but more importantly, living deep. And um, I I hope I'm not starting to sound sententious, but... um, No, no, I think that's well, I think that's well said. It's like... um these these ideas these philosophers they don't belong to anyone they belong to everyone and exactly exactly ryan yes i think there's something seneca says he goes like uh if you really want to own the quotes or the ideas you have to put them into practice right you have to engage with them in some way and i think um yeah i think i think for i think it's two parts so one it's like these philosophers were not being particularly well served by the so-called academy. They were being forgotten or relegated or, 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 you know, being unduly uh, ignored. Um, So, so the, the idea that it was sort of uh, available is part one, but part two, the idea that, yeah, you don't have to be a genius to uh, interact with these people and add, put your own spin on them. In fact, Oopsie. that's what are you still there, for. Ryan? Oh, oh yes. Yeah, sorry. Can you hear me? I, I can now, but I, I missed probably the last sentence and a half. Oh. So rewind the tape for <laughs> yeah. me. No, I was, I was just saying that like, you don't have to be a genius to interact with these people. I mean, that's what's genius about the philosophy is that it's simple and straightforward and we should be able to add our own experiences and connections to them. And that's how, that philosophy continues to live on. Yes. But talk to me about popularizing, because I know I get that where people go, oh, you're just popularizing. And I go, thank you. That's an enormous compliment. Um, (laughs) But I imagine you've gotten a little bit of that criticism as well. Oh, yeah. And I I mean, all I can, well, first of all, I always, when I get that kind of, pushback or even just aggressive meanness. Um, I just always think, well, you don't want 
good ideas to just belong to an elite. Everyone should have access to good ideas, uh, philosophical and otherwise. You know, it's sort of like saying, you know, only certain cooks get to read certain cookbooks or something. Um, And I, I always believe, or, or at least it's my, my hope, my aspiration that when people read something that is accessible and, but more to the point that it actually, uh, it's ideas when applied in, in a reader's life are when those ideas are transformative in action, then I like to think that's an invitation to go to the primary sources. And if people have a problem with that, well, I don't have control over that. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's what I was thinking when they were saying like, oh, you know, this is a pop, you know, these Silicon Valley programmers are reading a philosophy uh, popular with Greek slaves. And I'm like, you're welcome. What else would you have them read? Like, tell me, like, I can think of so many things worse than popularizing an ancient philosophy that that is based around virtue, meaning courage, right, exactly. justice, temperance, and wisdom. Like, what, what else? Like, tell me, tell me what you'd rather uh, I be popularizing. Yes. Yes. I, I often think you know, the bitterness of critics is that they didn't do it, <laughs> you know. So, but, so walk me through your methodology because it's, it, you're not a classicist. So were you riffing on English translations? Were you actually reading it in the Greek and Latin? How, for people who are thinking about reading Epictetus, what, what is the, is it the provenance? What is the provenance of the words that show up in the art of living? Well, what I did, and this is what I do when I think or write about anything, is I have um, I have a room in my house that has nothing in it, literally nothing, except for one pillow that I use to prop. I sit on the floor and I prop myself against the pillow on the wall. And then when I'm studying something with the intent to write, I just, I make a circle of books around me, you know, books that are relevant to what I'm doing. And so in the case of Epictetus, um, I, I do, um, well, I, I do read some Latin, though that wouldn't have been too helpful with Epictetus. But I just, I gathered every English translation of the discourses that, uh, I I love how they're called the diatribes. (laughs) I always kind of uh, get a a little giggle out of that. But I, I surrounded myself with every translation I could get my hands on. I went to a lot of used bookstores in Berkeley uh, to find them. But mostly I relied, ultimately after reading uh, any number of these, I th- my main companion was the George Long uh, translation. 
And and so you're just sort of loosely riffing on what they, how they translated it, trying to get sort of the an accessible essence of what Epictetus was trying to say. Well, I actually, um, so I decided that I would just, um, at least the first part of the book, I, I literally would read a passage of the Enchiridion. I based it on the Enchiridion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I followed the sequence of ideas in the Enchiridion and just, uh, you know, I would read a, I'd read a page and then I would write it uh, as you know, as a modern woman trying to be intelligible to other people. And I, I, I guess that's, I mean, in some ways I'm having to, in my mind, reverse engineer this because I've, I've sort of never had a method for anything except huh. go, going into my uh, spare room which is is kind of like this, you know, the metaphor of the blank canvas and possibility sure. and so forth, and just ideas occur in there. But but I, I did strictly follow the progression of ideas in the Enchiridion, and then there's there's a part two of the book that is 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 more kind of a cherry picked. Um, synthesis of what I considered to be the key ideas across all of the um, discourses, the diatribes. The sort of the essential teachings section. Exactly. So I have a question, and I hope this doesn't come off as a, as an insult. I mean it as a compliment. How how come no books uh, since no no um, no other translations, no other works on the Stoics? Um, did you? What, 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 I'm just curious. Well, the, then the next big idea, not big idea, but good idea, came along. And in a way, it was a natural outgrowth of Stoicism. And what it was is, uh, it was music. I decided that I had a duty, uh, you know, qua Stoicism, to liberate and make available the sound of this one-of-a-kind instrument that I had made for me when I was much younger, but, but hadn't. So I'm talking about this in the, in the aftermath of the success of the art of living. I, you know, I, I just thought to myself, well, what, what would be a different vessel for beauty uh, and somehow communicating, um, I, I don't know, the value of goodness, virtue. Again, I'll just borrow that word. And I, I know that no one else is going to let the world have this sound. I mean, there's similar sounds to it, but I feel 
in some sense, chosen to to um, make this music and and to write write music for people. So that's pretty much what I threw myself into. I did take a stab in my agent at the time, right after um, Art of Living came out, and well, after it kind of exploded. You know, she said, "Oh man, this is your time. You've got yeah, you've got to write." You know son of the art of living or you know etc and i tried doing it and just that that horse wouldn't go i i wasn't i i i just wasn't interested Interesting. <laughs> i might be now i i'm i'm actually working on a book about women in stoicism right oh. now so so um it's not that i've given up writing i mean i i still write small pieces uh, what, what, just, yeah. what, what, what's your, t- tell us about that. Cause I am fascinated. Uh, I think I was just talking about that to someone the other day. There, there is kind of this, uh, assumption, especially from Stoic critics that the philosophy is just popular with dudes. And I, I know for a fact, cause I hear from, it's like, it's not even close to that. It, it might even be, uh, tipping towards more popular with women than men. Um, I've been fascinated with just how uh, many women I hear from as far as the audience goes. What is your, what is your conceit with the book? Well, I would say that I see the female posture in relation to stoicism and uh, philosophy, Western philosophy more generally as in some ways we are we get to take on the role of of Socrates vis-a-vis the tradition because we're we've only recently become members of the conversation and because of that we we have that outsider perspective that kind of gadfly um way of uh, viewing this tradition. And it, so in that way, um, I think we can clearly see as, as this thing is developing, this thing known as modern stoicism, we can appreciate it, its merits and its serviceable parts, but we can also see the conspicuous absences, the necessary things that are missing from modern Stoicism. And so my main thing is that I find the traditional Stoic virtues, you know, the the four categories of um, uh, you know, t- uh, temperance and uh, Oh God, I'm having an old lady moment here for a second. Help me out there. Pop quiz: the four virtues. Oh, uh, temperance, oh, courage, uh, courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. Temperance, ju- courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. Yeah, I think those are terrific virtues, and and I think the entailments of those virtues are fabulous. But I call those virtues I virtues. 
okay. uh, you know, like, because they are ways of uh, developing the virtue uh, of, of an individual. And of course, that's where all change starts, right? All but sure. all good change starts, you know, I can't try and change you, I can only change me. However, what I see missing, and what I think is fairly self-evident to women, whether they articulate it or not, is that we need we virtues, too. You don't think which, justice is a we virtue? I'm curious. I think I think it can be spun as such, but I... I think, let's see, I'm thinking out loud right now, so I may speak good, kind of sloppy. But what, what I think is the I virtues, what I'm calling the I virtues, so just run with me here, mm-hmm. are... Um, they are not rooted in the experience of human vulnerability and dependence, which are conditions that exist for all people, but are especially um, salient for females. It, you know, like when we're nursing our babies, we look down at a completely dependent, vulnerable person. And more than one eminence has said that the mother-child relationship is arguably the archetype for moral relationships. So, so what are these we virtues I'm talking about? Um, I think they're. I think they are the virtues that sustain and ignite the I virtues. So. So I came up with four we virtues, and I'm kind of curious what you think. This is all work in progress. Okay. So the first one is nurturance, namely uh, the active uh, provision of emotional and physical care and protection for others. Um, The second one, for the time being, I'm calling liberality, which is the willingness to respect or accept behavior or opinions different from your own, being open to new ideas like empathy, the ability to seek to understand and share the feelings of others. Uh, The third virtue, what am I calling? Oh, yeah, kindness. You know, simply the quality of being friendly generous and considerate. And finally, altruism, the selfless concern for the well-being of others. So I'm, I'm not saying that these four virtues can't be kind of kind of juiced out of uh, the official virtues, but why I think the we virtues are important 
and not just important, but necessary, is because where we live, where we actually live, is not in ourselves, but in relationship. Of course. We live it right. And because we live in relationship, I think we need virtues that uh, affirm that and, and develop that locus. And so, for example, I think you could go off, you know, with your long father time beard and live in a cave or something, and you could by yourself develop courage. You could maybe not justice. Yeah, you're definitely tripping me with justice. That's important. But but the other um, three virtues, you could you could work on yourself every day in your sure. cave. But you wouldn't necessarily then be able to, I think, live a fully morally expressed life once you came out of the cave and got a haircut, you know? No, I, I get it. So I'm in the middle of, and I've talked about this on the podcast, but I'm in the middle of doing uh, a four book series, one on each of the four virtues. So, um, next, Fabulous. next month, I guess it'll be September 28th. The first one comes out, which is courage is calling. And I, and I thought a lot about it because courage is this virtue that I think a lot of people can get wrong. Um, in that it's, it's just about braving risk or danger. Um, I think to get to your point, and this is so basically the, the way my book works is that the first part is about overcoming fear. The first, the second part is about acting with courage. The third part of the book is is exactly along the lines you're talking about, which is how do you get to away from the I part of the virtue and towards the we part of the virtue. So for me, the third part of the book is like the distinction between courage and heroism is that heroism is when it's about somebody else. Uh, as opposed to you. So, you know, I, yes. I was talking to a, a guy who was an instructor at the Naval Academy and he was talking about, he's like, jumping on a grenade is not heroic. It's only if you're jumping on a grenade to save someone else, right? Like if you can get away from the grenade and know it will hurt nobody else, then it's not courageous, right? It's stupid. Um, right. You know, so I think this idea of the we virtues is is really important because, you know, Stoicism is so much an individual philosophy, and it's what is guiding, you know, Epictetus through this horrendous adversity. But it would be worthless if he hadn't become a teacher, or a you know, if he hadn't helped all these people throughout the centuries. I think James Stockdale being a great example of taking uh, Epictetus's uh, virtues and making them we virtues in that prison camp where he was protecting yeah. and uh, supporting and uh, fighting for the people next to him. So I, I love the, the, the concept of I versus we virtues. I think it's really important. Thank you. I can't wait to it read the book. It sounds amazing. Well, likewise, I'm sure. I, I think that's wonderful, just homing in on each of those virtues. I I really look forward to uh, just talking to you outside yeah. of these formal this formal um, 
please. How do how do you do? Let's, let's keep <laughs> going. No, it, it's amazing. Uh, I loved the art of living. It it helped put me on the path that I'm on today. So thank you for that, and uh, I look forward to the new book. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks for being you. <laughs> Likewise. All right, here. Let me hit stop. Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The the reviews make a difference. And of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that just saved Abercrombie? Or the tech acquisition that was just like Game of Thrones? Or the one financial equation that can solve climate change? Then check out our daily podcast, The Best One Yet, or as we call it, T-Boy. This is Nick. This is Jack. And we pick the three most interesting business news stories every day for the perfect mix. 20 minutes each morning, you're going to feel brighter. We call it pop biz, don't we, Jack? Where pop culture meets business news. So whether you want to kick off a conversation with your buddies, or you're going for that promotion at work, or you just want to know the trends before your friends, feel brighter by starting your morning with us every weekday. Listen to the best one yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your pods. You can listen to the best one yet ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, and many more, Wondery means business. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion-dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business.